Uh, good morning, everybody. We'd like to make a start. Um, thanks very much for coming. Today's um, uh, seminar is about um, legal rights in data. Uh, before we get on to that, um, just a couple of housekeeping bits. Um, our next session is um, on the 8th of December. It's on departing employees protecting company assets in the digital world, um, or as we more colloquially call it here, nutters who nick stuff. Um, that's going to be the uh, 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 Labour Law Group and the IP Group talking about that. We'll shortly be announcing our 2011 um, winter and spring programme. Uh, data is one of the key themes for us over the next 12 months. Um, and I think we've, been set, we've sent out a sort of save the date for our data law event on the 27th of January 2011 uh, in association with, with PLC. It's an afternoon event given over to data. Um, we welcome everyone to um, complete the feedback form, please, um, uh, and register for CPD points if you're entitled. And we're always eager for you guys to let us know um, what you want us to talk about for future CCFs. So please do put in your suggestions. Uh, data is uh, a key theme for us over the next 12 months um, and what we've tried to do is come up with um, not a completely novel but a newish sort of way of looking at what we call the data centric world um, really around the prism or through the prism of data law trying to unify a number of areas related to data um, that people have tended to consider fairly disparately so we've sort of developed this six-layer stack here. Um, today's session is on data. It's the, 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 the middle stack there, the fourth stack that we've called out. Um, and we'll be looking uh, at um, legal rights as they arise in relation to data. We're not looking at the other elements of the stack, so the, particularly the, the, the software copyright issues that arise in relation to uh, uh, um, database software and data architecture, um, data management and security, and the growing area of regulation around data, data privacy, sector-specific regulation, and competition law. We will be looking at all of these over the next 12 months and pulling everything together in our January session. So uh, today, um, I'll be presenting uh, on the sort of framework for what we mean when we're talking about rights in data. Um, my partner, Paul Hinton, um, who in a past life was at one of the large exchanges and so uh, uh, breathed and slept this stuff every day, will be looking at the growing body of case law around it, um, giving some practical pointers on what this means, whether you're a data provider or a data user. Um, and then we've got a sort of case study that we'll be presenting just before coffee and coming back and talking about afterwards. Rich, I gather this, the volume's not working. So, um, is anyone here at the back? No. Okay. So okay. Well, I'll, 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 I'll try and speak up anyway. Um, so, uh, 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 also with your materials, um, there is a white paper which really goes through in a little bit more detail the areas that we're talking about today um, and also refers to, in the footnotes, almost by way of a portal to other uh, other resources for those who are interested in it and we'll be sending this round in electronic copy so that you'll have access to, to, to those materials. So what are we talking about today? Uh, data is funny stuff in legal terms. 
in and of itself, it's pretty inert. Uh, what happens is that rights subsist in relation to data. So when we say rights and data, it's really a shorthand for the analysis around the legal rights that subsist in relation to data. Um, and those rights are of two main types, intellectual property rights and contract rights. Effectively, you get to a position where contract is king, but you only get there when you have looked at individually at each of the, the rights, which are copyright, database right, confidentiality. I put patents there, but they're less relevant, uh, and, and trademarks. And in this part, I'll be just going through the essential ingredients of each very quickly. Um, the first one is copyright. And when you're looking at all these intellectual property type rights, rights that you can enforce against the whole world, the thing to bear in mind in relation to data is that each right has its own rules and own sets of requirements. Um, so copyright is a formal remedy. It does what it says on the tin. It protects against copying. In the data area, the law has changed over the last 10 or 12 years, and the core definition is that database is uh, uh, defined in Section 3 of the Copyright Designs and Patents Act as a searchable collection of independent works. That's Mr Justice Laddie's sort of reformulation of it, if you like. But if you think of a database in copyright and database right terms as a searchable collection of independent works, that gets you there. Uh, the, 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 the three things that you need to bear in mind when looking at copyright protection for databases are that database has been added as a specific type of literary work. So there is a specific uh, 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 criterion of database copyright. Conversely, database has been expressly excluded from table or compilation copyright, which is the old compilation copyright that we used to know and love before 1998 in relation to databases. So we've now got this new specific database copyright as a literary work, um, but they didn't stop there. They've increased the standard of originality. As you know, the copyright, the originality standard in English copyright law is traditionally low. It's just basically that it hasn't been copied from anywhere else. But they've adopted a new continental-based standard for originality in relation to database copyright. Uh, and, and the yardstick is that copyright will subsist in the database if and only if, by reason of the selection or arrangements of the contents of the database, the database constitutes the author's own intellectual creation. So this new standard of author's own intellectual creation was a new creature of English law, and it's only in April this year that we've had the first case as to what it means. Paul will be going through this, um, the football data code and Britain Pools case, um, but there are essentially two steps. You have to parse out the particular work uh, that uh, went into selecting or arranging the data in the database. So you've got to isolate from all the other work that went into constituting the database the particular work that went into selecting or arranging the data. And then when you've isolated that work, you have to assess whether it involved the author's judgment, taste or discretion. 
So what they're really saying is the, the standard of author's own intellectual creation is the applying by the author of judgment, taste or discretion. And in, in typical English copyright law uh, judgment way, the, the judge is saying, I don't care whether that judgment, taste or discretion was good, bad or indifferent. It's just that there was some. So that's really the gloss this year on database copyright, the first case. Um, and I think we've got away with a standard that, that, that you know, is, is reasonably a little bit lower than what we might have expected. So new rules about copyright in databases, but don't forget the plain old literary copyright. Um, uh, Paul will be going through a number of cases, but um, UBS is being hauled over the coals at the moment by Energy Information Group for basically taking, or allegedly taking, uh, oil and gas research without permission. So don't forget plain old literary work copyright. Um, don't forget that software itself has literary work copyright protection set separate from the database. Um, and in your materials, there's a link to Paul O'Hare, my partner's article on the legal protection of electronic databases under English law, which goes through that outside the scope of today's talk. Um, and finally, don't forget that all the documentation ancillary to the database, the specs, the message formats, all these things are likely to attract uh, a plain old literary copyright protection as well. So the second right that subsists in relation to data, the second right in data is database right. Um, when this came in also in 1998, we, th we, were, we thought that it might give um, a much broader property right, but the end result is, as a result of a line of case law, um, that the database right protection, particularly for real-time databases, has largely been eviscerated. So database right nominally subsists in a database if there has been a substantial investment in obtaining, verifying or presenting the contents of that database. Uh, and it's infringed if a person without the owner's consent extracts or reutilizes all or a substantial part of its contents. The, uh, so so uh, different from copyright, a new set of, of rules. Um, and the BHB and fixtures marketing cases, which went all the way from the national courts to the European Court of Justice um, and had judgment delivered on them in, in, in November 2004, largely eviscerated database right protection. You get a real sense that there's a policy decision at the ECJ level to narrow down this right that could have given a property right to all sorts of websites. So, and it's done that by two ways. Um, it's made it harder to show that the right subsists. So they said the investment relates not to creating the materials for the database, but in collecting existing independent materials. So if you like, it's at the level before you stick them into the database, it's the level of collecting them, which is a little bit of an arcane distinction. Doesn't hold water particularly well analytically, but that's been followed in all the member state courts. Um, so you get a real problem where the content creation and the database creation is effectively contemporaneous. Um, and that's especially the case with real-time market data. Uh, the second element of making it more difficult to show, uh, to enforce database rights, um, is that they've upped the level, they've upped the bar um, in, in relation to what constitutes um, uh, uh, unauthorized extraction or reutilization in relation to a substantial part of the database. Um, it was thought that if you went in and, and nicked occasional bits, then that would constitute um, infringement. 
but if that doesn't amount to taking a substantial part of the database, you won't have, have succeeded in showing infringement, even if you've got it over this hurdle of uh, showing that the right subsists. So you might think that database right is of absolutely no value, but that's not the case. Uh, and a good example of that um, is in the financial services sector, uh, uh, security classification taxonomies. Um, so, so QCIPs, CDOLs, Reuters instrument codes are all the kind of thing that this very narrow or thin sliver, this eggshell right, um, database right, will subsist in. But that's much more like the old compilation copyright used to be. So at the end of that, you, you, you've got a, a sort of lot of fuss about nothing, really. You used to have one thing, copy, compilation copyright, which we all used to know and love. You've now got a much more complex, uh, multi-layered anal analytical matrix, which doesn't get you a, a, that much further. Copyright and, to an extent, database rights are both formal remedies. Um, you need to copy the form of the data. And somewhat counterintuitively, confidentiality can give you the best substantive right because it protects the substance and not just the form of the information. There are a lot of cases on this and they go back sort of 150 years or so, um, but where you have information that has this quality of confidentiality, secret, substantial and identified is probably as good a, a description of it as, as, as anything. Um, that will apply to data in certain circumstances. And even if the data itself doesn't have the quality of confidentiality, confidentiality can protect data as aggregated when compared with the co component bits, even if the component bits are in the public domain. So where the structure of information is ag in, in aggregated form isn't publicly available, the law of confidence will intervene to protect the information as aggregated, the work as aggregated, if you like. Um, and that's a little bit counterintuitive, perhaps, um, but it does mean that, you, that at least don't forget about confidence when you're, you're looking at, at, at protecting rights in relation to data. Um, a, a sort of useful tip there is to make sure that you know, if it's obviously in the public domain, don't, you, 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 you probably won't get much benefit from doing it, but if, if your information is confidential, e even in relation to a certain period of time, then do banner it as such. So we've looked at copyright, database right, confidentiality. Um, Paul will be going through the cases on these, so this is just sort of giving you the framework. Um, the fourth one is trademarks. Um, and you might say, well, what do trademarks mean in relation to data? Because their function is essentially different. It's to, uh, uh, it's a sort of hallmark of origin. It's to show the reputation of the owner of the, of the trademark right. Um, but there's a long line of cases now from around the world, particularly in the index world, where people use um, a, 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 a well-known index as a name, S&P 500, Dow Jones, the DAX are all cases that we've uh, had and Paul, Paul will take you through. Um, and they show uh, the limits on, on what someone can do using an index in the name of a futures, options or ETF product. All this stuff is set out in the white paper in, in quite a lot more detail. Um, and in practice, there's a balance between protecting the trademark holder's interest in, in ensuring the integrity of prominence of the product or service and allowing use in accordance with honest practice. Um, and that's Article 6 of the 
Trademark Directive, Section 10.6 of the UK Trademarks Act. There's no cases directly relating to data on this in the UK, um, but the extent of trademark protection can be relatively easy to overstate, um, uh, particularly in the data supply world where the potential defendant needs a reliable constant access to, to real-time data. Um, he probably needs to go to the trademark owner anyway. So we'll be saying a little bit more about that. The difficulties and complexity of the analysis on IP rights in relation to data means that contract is king. And that's probably the most important thing to take away from here today. Um, the drawback, it gives, contract gives strong protection. It gives limited protection because you can't enforce contract rights against the whole world, whereas you can with IP rights. So that contract will only give rights and confer obligations on the contracting parties, not against the world. But there's a great dictum of Mr. Justice Etherton in At the Races, which was a follow-on case to, to the BHB case, where he said that the data supplier has in the data a valuable commodity for which it is entitled to charge. There is no authority to the contrary, including the BHB case. And in the paragraph before that, which is set out in the white paper, he's saying, you know, irrespective of whether or not there are IP rights, sort of, don't come to me and talk to me about IP rights. The person who the, the supplier has in the data a valuable commodity for, for which it's entitled to charge. Um, that raises the issue of the extent to which you can enforce certain terms in relation to data, particularly through competition law, which again we'll come back to and explore in another session. But subject to that, contract rights are a good way of protecting data. Uh, again, Paul will go through this um, in a certain amount more detail, um, but the debate on contract tends to centre on a number of well-worn issues in negotiations. Um, you know, contractual restrictions on using the data otherwise than for permitted purposes. Um, when you're creating derivative works, you're using data from an index to create a chart is an obvious example. Who owns the rights to the chart? Can the, the original data owner trace its rights through? What happens when you commingle data from another sort, from a number of sources? I liken it to putting sort of red water, green water, and yellow water into a swimming pool, and it ends up being blue water. Then who owns the rights to the blue water? Um, and the other thing is, is post-term use. These are all covered off in, in the white paper, and Paul will be going through them in a little bit more detail. Um, the other issue is, are you looking at a data supply agreement as an access service or supply contract, or are you looking at it as a license of rights? Also, are the restrictions sort of naked contractual rights, or are they an incident of underlying IP rights, which sort of focuses you more on competition law, um, which we'll be alluding to but not going into detail on today. So that's um, my initial canter through the framework of these rights. I think the main, main takeaways for the rest of the, the morning are you know, data's funny stuff, it's inert. Rights subsist in relation to data. Um, if they meet the, those rights, meet their ordinary requirements, copyright, database right, confidentiality, and trademarks, and throws you back on contract um, as, 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 as the main tool for, for regulating conduct. So I'll now hand over to Paul, um, and he'll take you through uh, uh, what this all means. Paul. Thanks, Richard. Morning, everyone. Um, before I start, I'll just mention I had a quick look at the attendance list today and I realised that there are four companies here who are going to be mentioned in these cases, so um, apologies, it's only fair comment, I hope. Um, 
moving on, what we're going to do is quickly canter through all the various cases that relate to the things that Richard's been talking about and just try and briefly take you through the facts and show you why the court has come to the decisions it has. We finally got to a point, I think, five years on from the database right, where we, we've got a bit more certainty about what database rights mean and how it ties in with copyright, but there are still a few gaps. And if one looks a bit further afield, so bringing in some US case law and some German case law in particular, you can see that actually we don't have a cohesive view across the globe on, on this by any means, which is why, again, we have to fall back on contract. So first of all, there are no rights in data itself, only to the data. Uh, the case on this is Oxford v Moss. Although Mr. Moss was coincidentally at Liverpool University, um, he took an exam paper, he looked at the contents before the exam, intending to return the paper uh, and obviously use the contents in order to get a better result, one assumes. Uh, he got caught out, unfortunately for him, and he was taken to court uh, for theft under the Theft Act. The key point here, although it's a criminal case, is that the court decided effectively just taking the information without taking the paper wasn't taking any intangible property. There was no theft of any property. So therefore, he couldn't be done under the Theft Act. Effectively, it was a theft of confidential information, which, as you know, is a civil right. Secondly, as Richard mentioned this morning, don't forget literary copyright. We're not going to go to it much detail, other than to say it's still very relevant. Uh, in this case, which is ongoing, and obviously all the facts are alleged at the moment, uh, UBS had a single user license in respect of uh, various oil publications published by EIG. Uh, there were three different magazines. It's alleged to have taken articles directly from that magazine and put it in its own broadcast, which was sent out to clients in 17 different countries uh, on 10 occasions in 2006 to 2007. If they have actually taken the articles, which qualify for copyright protection, they've been written, they meet that minimum standard required under English law, taken them and put them in another uh, magazine and sent it to the public, they will be infringing the original rights holders' rights in that copyright and could be liable. We'll find out shortly. US has a very similar view on this, not surprising. Uh, Lowry used to publish uh, New York Stock Exchange Market Trend Analysis, and think, in fact I think it still does, um, which contains a whole lot of statistics, graphs, charts and commentary, um, including the Lowry numbers, which give you a general feel of how the market is going in the US very interesting background for many brokers. Um, Leg Mason again had one single user license for that information and in fact what it did over a period of 14 years it uh, initially used to have a, a Lowry announcement in the morning at about 8 o'clock and it would tell everybody what the market views were and read out some of the facts that had been given in the, uh, in the Lowry magazines. Leg Mason would then also fax about 100 copies of the uh, magazine out to its various branches where they would make additional copies and hand it to people at desks. Um, eventually they ended up putting up on the internet and there was evidence that over 16,000 people had accessed that over the 10 year period. Uh, and further to that they also emailed the contents to people. So quite systematic use of the um, information and they only had one single user license. Now, interestingly, they tried to raise a defence to this, which I won't go into much detail, other than to say that it, they weren't responsible for their employees' behaviour because they had a clear policy on not copying. It didn't help them that the CEO was a direct recipient of the copies um, and, and had been involved in deciding how to use them. The court wasn't very impressed. Um, as you can see, the damages were awarded and they were significant, uh, $20 million. Uh, they were effectively compiled in a different way to English law, but what they did was say, it's £50,000 per infringement, 
and 100,000 after you had notice of the fact that you were infringing. Because uh, Mr. Lowry, quite understandably, about five years before he decided to sue, used to contact people at Leg Mason on a regular basis to tell them, you're infringing my rights, please stop doing it, and send various emails. So once they're on notice, there were punitive damages as well. The point here, it's still relevant, even in the modern data world, particularly where you have something that is expressed in written form and meets the minimum requirements of copyright, and it is directly copied. BHB and William Hill. I'm not going to go into the facts in much detail. I'm assuming, looking around the room, that most of you are very familiar with this. Um, the key point, as Richard mentioned earlier, and again, this is in the white paper, is that BHB were trying to exercise their rights and protections under the new database right directive, which I must admit, I think most of us lawyers thought was a brand new right under English law, a very nice new shiny one, um, which would be quite powerful. And as Richard said, effectively, the ECJ eviscerated it and uh, really narrowed its application. BHB spent about £4 million a year on creating its database. Now, what was its database? It was all the registered runners and riders for each race with their colours. You know, each colour has to be different to make sure that you haven't got two horses with similar colours in the same race. They decide the handicapping and they compile a list of riders and send it out to the public. William Hill published this data on its website, having taken it from newspapers and also a data feed, which had some unclear contract terms on it. Therefore, William Hill sued under the database right to so say, you are taking what, I've give, what I'm making. Now, Article 7 of the database right, obviously implemented under English law. Uh, Justice Jacob, in the case, was not particularly impressed that we have two acts covering the same thing and quite, um, quite sensibly mentioned it would be better just to work direct from the EU directive, which is in fact what the court did. So the first thing was, in order to qualify for database rights, qualitatively and or quantitatively, a substantial investment in either the obtaining, verification or presentation of the contents had to be made. The key point here was that BHB, effectively by taking phone calls from people who were entering riders and then typing it into their system, was seen to actually be creating the data. It wasn't actually taking independent materials, it was creating the data itself. The court said that actually the resources used to seek out existing independent material did not include creating it and that actually they were only verifying the original contents. In other words, it was a copyright type right and not a database right type right, as we now know. If you create things, you can't rely on database right, the sui generis general right. ECJ conclusions. Um, to prevent extraction and or utilization of the whole or substantial part, evaluated qualitatively and or quantitatively of the contents. So in other words, that's your protection, your right to stop people doing things to your database. Well, luckily, extraction and reutilization definitely doesn't mean you have to go direct to your database. You can take it from a third party and it will still be infringement of your database. However, we learned that a substantial part was also defined as quantitatively purely volume. Again, familiar under English law. I don't know if you remember the Starsky and Hutch case, but it's a very similar thing. If you take a large amount of something, um, then effectively you'll be protected. The difference between this, the uh, Starsky and Hutch case under English law is qualitatively, because effectively, if you qualitatively take something under English law, they, they look at the, the value of the information you've taken. Then the Starsky and Hutz, they've taken one frame from a 300,000 frames on a film and put it on a t-shirt. The point here being you could immediately recognise the characters from the film and therefore it was seen as qualitatively taking something. We have a different definition under the database, right? Effectively, it refers to the scale of investment in the obtaining verification or presentation of the contents taken, regardless of whether this represents quantitatively a substantial part of the database. It's a bit of a mouthful. We're not exactly sure what it means, and I think we will later find out. What it's really saying is you have to look at the value of money invested in the part taken. 
again, if you're actually searching a database and taking one thing out of it, it's not really clear to me whether it's the value in creating the entire database that will be looked at and the value in being able to pull that small piece of information out, whether you'll just look at the small piece of information taken itself. It's not very clear. Um, and then insubstantial. Well, luckily, we found out that was anything that's not substantial. Um, and if you take in substantial amounts to infringe a database right, effectively, you'll have to take it enough so that the accumulative effect is to reconstitute or make available to the public the whole or substantial parts. Again, slightly circular. The point is, the real point here is we thought this was a very big, broad, new English right. It's not. It really applies to people who are taking independent works, but it can only be useful in limited circumstances. If you create data and put it into a database, do not rely on this right to take away message. Next one, database copyright, which came out in April this year. Uh, a very helpful case, which sort of closes the circle in many respects that was opened, or the gap that was left open by database right itself. It's implemented in the CDPA, and uh, it's a, right, a database copyright right. Now, the football fixture lists for English and Scottish leagues were looked at in extreme detail. And the court looked at the process in which the information was taken, how the fixture lists were created, who was consulted, and where the information came from. Uh, there were five stages in the process. Essentially, first of all, the English Football League and the Scottish Football League would identify weekends on which games could be playable and let the uh, Atos Origin, who were making the database, aware of which weekends could be used. Atos Origin would then look at all of the different teams and try and meet these five or six basic rules along with some others. Each team had to play home and away twice and had to make sure that other competitions and commitments weren't clashing. As near as possible, each team has to have the same number of home and away games. No team can play three consecutive home games or away games or four out of five. And also questionnaires and manual directions were involved, so they had to go back and consult with each of the teams to work out whether there'd be any clashes. They also had to consult with the police to check there were no fan problems on travel days. So in other words, it was a very involved and detailed process. Now, the court looked at four possible protections. After the database right in particular, as you're probably all familiar with, we don't tend to go for one IP protection if we're having to rely on it. We tend to try and say, in the alternative, it's this one. If it's not bad, it's this one. You go for the scattergun approach. So what did the court decide? Well, they said, first of all, under the database right, no, sorry, you're, you're creating that data. You cannot rely on it. Secondly, is a literary work compilation or as a compilation, sorry, other than a database? Well, no, it's not. It's a database, so you can't rely on it as literary compilation right. Thirdly, do each of the contents, i.e. each of the, the details detailing the matches qualify for copyright protection? No, they're too minimal. Uh, Exxon case in particular, it's far too minimal, it's factual, you can't protect it under copyright. However, you can protect it under database copyright, which is the good news for all of us. So what does that mean? As Richard said, we've established a four-tier test, the key um, details of which are in the white paper in which he went through. The main point here is it, it's got to qualify for originality if and only if by the reason of the selection and arrangement, which is the key point of the contents of the database, the database constitutes the author's own intellectual creation. The good news is that actually, unlike the general right, you were allowed to take account of the fact of the effort and energy involved in creating the data itself. Key difference. Um, they found the work in selecting and arranging the data to be the own author's intellectual creation. It met the bar. Well, why did it meet the bar? One of the key reasons was the judge involved said um, you could have gone through this process any number of times and come out with different results. 
wasn't like a telephone list. You're not doing something where there's an automatic result. There was definitely effort involved in it. And as Richard said, it doesn't matter whether it's good, bad or indifferent. The point is it involved intellectual creation to make the list. There was good evidence of this. Um, also, the amount of the volume of effort put in was considered sufficient to afford it protection. So therefore, we have something that's now closed a big hole left by the database general right, but it's not been to the ECJ, and there are perhaps a number of potential inconsistencies in the case. In particular, for example, it's not clear where this leaves compilation copyright. If you remember, under English law, compilation copyright is defined as um, a table or compilation other than a database. Now, pre-2000, um, or sort of pre-1997, uh, the implementation of the database right directive, we had the Ladbrook case, which effectively looked at a pools coupon and said there's been a lot of energy and effort in putting this pools coupon together, which allows it to qualify as a compilation copyright. It's questionable now whether that would be considered a database, because obviously it's probably a searchable list. Most things are if they're made available online. So, database, so compilation right is now a much more diminished right. Now, lastly, comparing that with the US position, there is no database directive. We do have a compilation copyright in the US, which is very similar in some ways to the UK right, although the standard of protection is quite similar to the EU. Uh, you've got to prove that the resulting work constitutes an original work of authorship, independently arrived at, um, and with a minimal, minimal element of creativity involved. The key case here is Feist. Um, Feist republished a version of the Rural Telephone Service Co's list of um, people and telephone numbers. Rural Telephone Co was part of a, a small area and it was responsible for creating the telephone list of its own um, customers. Feist were publishing a general area directory with maybe 10 or 12 different lists underneath it. It tried to get a license from Rural Telephone Co in order to publish its data. Rural Telephone Co refused. Feist went ahead and did it anyway. Uh, Rural Telephone Co therefore sued Feist, saying you've republished my list, I have a compilation copyright. The judge looked at what they'd done and said, yes, you spent a lot of effort and energy putting together your list, but it was mere sweat, sweat of the brow, I think is the phrase. Effectively, it's just effort and energy. There's no creativity or intelligence involved. All you have to do is list it alphabetically, which is probably done by a computer. Therefore, it's not protected under compilation copyright. It's just a list that's not protectable. So in other words, it's, um, it's similar to the EU database copyright, um, but there's no sui generis right in the US. So again, we have slight differences and nuances. Perhaps it's more similar to where we were in the UK before the database right directive. Moving on, now Navitaire, the facts of the case here, that Navitaire owned OpenRes, which was a ticketless airline reservation system uh, used by EasyJet under license. EasyJet wanted to open a new uh, database system and it hired Bulletproof in order to develop it. During the process of development, um, Bulletproof is alleged, without actually having any access to the source code at any point, to have copied the kind of look and feel of the original system and software. Um, and also, during the migration process, to have accessed the software in order to migrate the data across. So remember, the key facts of the case are there couldn't have been any literal copying of the source code. It's purely look and feel. As Richard said, this is probably a subject for another day in detail, but I would like to just brush over the key findings and move on to what's relevant in terms of data. So GUI screens themselves, i.e. a pictorial representation of a function, something which says print, and you've got a picture of a printer, for example, they weren't protectable under literary copyright. Perhaps not surprising, they're not written. Um, but the point being that the, uh, 
the people acting for Navatar claimed that because you knew which function was going to be performed underneath it, and because when you depressed a button, it led to a series of source code applications taking forth, that it was protectable under literary copyright. The court wasn't amused and said no, but it is protectable under artistic copyright. User command sets. Very briefly, they were divided into two, two types of user commands. Um, a command or function which is expressed in writing, um, for example, uh, I need a ticket, and then it performs one function, it prints your ticket. More complex commands were effectively, there were a number of different variations of the command that could have been put in that would have left a different functions. The court looked at that and said, well, look, without actually looking at the source code and the operations that could have happened, there's two things here. First of all, a simple code, a simple command, sorry, doesn't actually qualify the copyright protection. It's too minimal, too small. A complex demand code, because actually it's not expressed until you press the particular command in question and the parser code then relays the different messages in the source code, again, it's not actually expressed to meet copyright protection in itself. Unless you copy the source code, you can't copy the commands. More controversially, perhaps, they also claimed a compilation copyright. In other words, that the sets of commands they devised and put together as a unit, as a system and a list, would qualify for copyright protection. The court, again, I think on the facts here, because potentially it could apply, said no, no, no compilation copyright. They're not devised in a schema. They're not being thought through. They're just individual words that happen to ask to do things. Again, systems business logic uh, effectively what they were saying here, what Navatar were claiming, um, was that there was a way of performing a ticketless function on the um, web. In order to book your ticket, you had to go through a series of stages. Where are you travelling? Where are you leaving from? Which type of seat do you want? Etc. They said actually what's happened is they've copied our process and put it into their own software. Again, the court effectively said here, well no, it's not a particularly unique process in any event. If you're going to book a ticket, you have to do a certain amount of functions. And secondly, that's not protectable by uh, literary copyright. All it is is an expression of a business function. It's not copyright protectable. Database structure, quite, uh, quite some difficult areas here. But the key point to take away is that this particular database um, was not protected as a literary database. The fact the copying they did, simply by looking at the structures of the database, didn't mean they had actually copied those parts of the database that were protectable under copyright. It was simply looking at the relationship at a high level and screen-based level as to how databases interacted without really understanding how they did. So what's relevant in the data world in particular is that during the migration process, EasyJet gave Bulletproof access via a Citrix link to its OpenRes software and a copy of the OpenRes database. They were trying to obviously transfer a massively complex, uh, I think many millions, um, of different types of information had to be transferred across and they needed to give them access to their database. Now the law says, despite what copyright says, which is effective that unless there's an explicit right otherwise, Navatar are entitled to keep their own software to themselves and they can license it to who they like. However, the law says, no, that's not quite true. If it's a database which is running underneath that software and it's a third party's property, that third party is allowed to have access to the software and to allow other people, afford other people access to the software insofar as is necessary to access and use their own database. It makes sense. It's a practical provision saying you can get your database out of a piece of software. You're not necessarily trapped by copyright. However, the court looked at this in detail and said it was fine for Bulletproof to have looked at the screenshots of the database to understand what was in it and where it was. 
what wasn't acceptable was to have access to software itself. And it makes perfect sense, I think, because the judge looked at the different alternatives for what could have been done with the data and said that whilst we're not requiring you to do something that's ridiculous or overly difficult, we do expect you maybe to have to go to, to an additional bit of effort not to infringe the software. However, he said that by using an open file format, which would have meant taking the information out, taking the source code and related aspects out and putting it into an open file format, which could have then been looked at by Bulletproof, there would have been no need to access the software. So if we go back to the wording of CDBA section 50, uh, you can do anything necessary to access and use the database contents. It wasn't held to be necessary. Now trademarks, as Richard said at the beginning, it's slightly unusual perhaps to be dealing with trademarks and respective data. If you think about it in the round, a trademark is uh, protection for a name used or expressed in respect of goods and services, particular goods and services. Quite often data isn't a goods and service, it's something that comes as a part of a service. However, in respect of indices, as you probably well know, indices have to be published, the FTSE 100 for example, so one can see how it moves, it's, it's in newspapers, it's in the press, um, it's part of an index that it has to be made available publicly, often outside of contract. Um, there are difficulties, as we've seen in previous uh, rights that we've talked about, perhaps in protecting an index. We'll come on to that in more detail a bit later. Um, so therefore people often look to copyright protection, because if you're trading on the basis of something that's based on an index, you're probably going to name the index you're using, otherwise it's difficult to work out what you're trading in. And MSCI expressed it very well in um, their, their prospectus as to where the issue lies. There is currently litigation regarding whether issuers of index-linked investment products need to obtain a license from the index owner, or companies may issue and trade products based on a publicly available index without the need for permission. Classic case of something that's not perhaps protectable under contract, and therefore we have to rely on IP rights, which as we know can be uncertain. Now, the US courts, it has to be said, are probably much more advanced uh, in their decision-making process with respect to uh, financial products that are based on indices. I'm going to run through these rather quickly, but just to point out, we know where the US court stands in respect to protection of some of these things. It's not just under um, trademark, I have to say. There are unfair competition terms which don't apply in the UK and other rights which are relevant, but the trademark in particular was decisive. So where you have a future that is based on an index, Obviously, a future is, a, is an obligation to buy something at a particular point in the future. Um, it is protectable if it's based on an index. Why is it protectable? Well, the future couldn't work without the index. It has to track it for it to mean anything. If someone wants to buy and sell the future, they have to refer back to the index at every point. So what they were saying, effectively, was the value of that index is in the name and the association with that name. Otherwise, the future wouldn't work. Therefore, it's protected. And um, recently, I think in July this year, um, Chicago Board of Options Exchange also um, sued, in combination with its index licensors, um, CBOT, sorry, who were, uh, sorry, ICE, who were creating um, options based on an index. Now, Chicago Board of Options Exchange had an exclusive license from the licensors for creating options based on their indices. Uh, ICE decided to go ahead regardless without a license and produce options based on the indices. Again, the court applied CBOT v Dow Jones. What it said was, you can't create the options based on the index unless you're able to rely on the index. The, the energy and effort that's gone into the index means that actually by association with the name, the options work. Therefore, you're actually infringing a trademark right. However, we have some other cases where it's clear that trademark won't protect you in the US. So secondary trading, slightly unusual case. 
uh, there's a company called Golden Nugget, which is effectively a casino and gambling company. Um, it had shop, stairs, uh, shop, <laughs> shares and stocks issued on the American Stock Exchange. Uh, there was secondary trading in those shares and stocks. And actually what happened was that um, the American Stock Exchange issued options on those stocks. And what the court said, um, quite amusingly really, was we can't find any case law relevant to this and perhaps it's not surprising because if you can prevent someone trading in a stock or share, then actually you're infringing the whole purpose of creating the stock or share as it can be sold on and traded by people. You can't protect that via a trademark. It's ludicrous. And secondly, and perhaps similarly, uh, NASDAQ created an ETF. Now, ETF is a, is a collection of um, stocks and shares which represent the index that overlies it. So, for example, with the FTSE 100, you might create an ETF which had a combination of 100 stocks and shares underneath it, which reflects that, and you can buy into that fund. Um, what they said here was, well, NASDAQ, you've created an ETF. Someone else is now trading that ETF. You can't stop them from trading that ETF because they're using your trademark. People are allowed to buy and sell the ETFs. It's a separate right. And further to that, we've also had another case on, on ETFs where options were based on ETFs, diamonds and spiders. Um, and ICE uh, effectively uh, tried to sell um, options based on the ETFs and Dow Jones and Standard & Poor tried to prevent them. And again, the point is the ETFs were already, already publicly available. They couldn't be protected by trademark. So where does that leave us in Europe? <coughs> well, we had a big case on that, which I'm sure most of you are familiar with earlier this year. It's a German case, so there are similarities to England, but there are perhaps some differences as well. Um, Commerzbank had a license from Deutsche Börse um, to trade the DAX, which is the 30 largest German companies, tracks them, and the Div DAX, which is the top 15 of the DAX by dividend yield. Uh, both are trademarks. <coughs> Commerzbank was rather um, put out by the fact that Deutsche Börse was increasing its prices. And so decided to apply for an applic a declaration, sorry, to use the underlying the indices as underlyings for some of the um, warrants, instruments, options, etc. It was trading on the basis of those indices. In other words, it's saying to the court, I don't need a license from these people to trade on those things. Um, I'm only referring to the trademarks in a fair and reasonable way. Now, what what does that really mean? Well, under the um, Article 6 and 10.6 in UK law, Article 6 of the um, Trademarks Directive, a trademark owner can't prevent a third party using its marks in a descriptive sense. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, the directive itself says a trademark shall not entitle the proprietor to prohibit a third party from using, in the course of trade, indications concerning the kind, quality, quantity, intended purpose, value, or other characteristics of goods or services provided he uses them in accordance with honest practices, which is the key word in, commercial, in industrial or commercial matters. This case really decided what that meant, and it's hopefully put quite clearly in the case because we had two different decisions. So in respect to the DAX mark, Commerce Bank said, or created in respect of their options, I think, and this is related to the DAX, and then it stated separately that DAX is a registered trademark. The court here said so there's been no infringement. You've correctly referenced the trademark, you haven't infringed the proprietary rights in it. It's clear that actually your good is separate from that trademark and you've, you've respected their rights. Secondly, with DivDAX, uh, it was different. What they called them here, that where they had some certificates that were called the Unlimited DivDAX Index Certificate. Quite clearly, that seems to be associated with DivDAX. It's a very different way of expressing it. And again, the infringement on, by Commerce Bank was said to be uh, it offends against common decency within the meaning of German trademark law. 
we don't have common decency in the UK, apparently. Um, Commerzbank unfairly violates the legitimate interests of Deutsche Bank, Deutsche Borsa, sorry, as a registered trademark owner. Now, how would this fall in the UK? Well, in theory, because we have the trademark directive, similarly. We don't know, but similarly. Uh, however, we also have passing off. Um, under passing off, there may have been an action under passing off. Now, just moving on quickly to conclusions, because I know we're slightly short on time. As Rich has expressed this morning, IP rights overlap. Sometimes the distinctions between them are blurred. They're developing and moving in many cases. We get cases that suddenly change our views on them, and often they're decided on the facts. And whilst we like to think they're, they're very much objectively decided, you will find new facts and new decisions coming through, and it's not going to stop. Um, so nowadays, when we're bringing a claim in respect of IP rights, you tend to use a scattergun approach. You tend to use every right you can think of, hoping that if it's not one, it's the other one. But that can be quite difficult when you're trying to construct an argument under one. It may mean that you're actually cutting yourself out from another one. It's not an easy thing to do. When we're looking from a global perspective, there are local variations. There's no global consensus about how these rights are implemented. There are variations that we've seen between the US and the UK. Actually, within Europe, there are still variations. So for rights owners, in the absence of a contract, it's often open to legal challenge as to whether you have rights and whether you can enforce them. And it's quite likely that you're going to be reluctant to perhaps go to litigation. You can't be sure where it will end up. And in fact, the uh, licensees also will be well aware of that and will exploit it. Quite often in this sort of data world as well, you find on one hand you're a licensor, on the other hand you're a licensee. So do you want to attack rights you may have to rely on in a different context? And as Richard was saying at the beginning, and I come back to the words of Ether uh, Justice Etherton in At The Races, contract is king. If you can explicitly state what you mean in a contract, it's far, far better to be able to rely on that than it is to be able to rely on IP rights. You can also have global protection in that way, enforceable in a particular state, chosen state. What he said here was BHB is entitled to impose a charge for use of its pre-race data, whether or not BHB has IP rights in respect to the data, and in particular database rights. BHB has in the data a valuable commodity for which it is entitled to charge. There is no authority to the contrary. Don't rely on IP rights. Rely on contract if you can. If you have to rely on IP rights, beware you may need to look very, very closely at a number of different and overlapping rights. Um, control data at the source and don't let anyone have access without a contract. Thanks very much. I'm just going to hand you over to Richard, who's just going to briefly run through the facts of our case study today. Thanks, Paul. Uh, we, we, we like to get you to do a bit of work. Um, so just before we break for coffee, uh, I'm going to run through um, a sort of case study scenario, uh, uh, which we'll leave up on the screen during coffee. Um, we'll come back after coffee at about quarter past ten. Um, Paul, uh, uh, I think, wants to focus on a number of particular types of contractual issue that arise, and then we'll sort of walk everyone through what we see as the answers to the, the question, or at least possible answers to the, to, to the question, and then, then we'll open it up for Q&A. So the quest in, in, in the fact pattern, you are the GC for Serendipity Limited, um, a futures trader whose sole business is in futures. Serendipity takes a confidential data feed under a written contract from the random exchange for use of the RFX100 index produced by RFX and based on RFX data. RFX data is only available via the RFX directly or from its licensed distributors. Serendipity produces random SL futures which track the RFX100. It uses the RFX100 data for internal regulatory and bookkeeping requirements 
and also commingles the RFX100 with other data and publishes the results freely on its website for customers. These results, the SL random, is labelled partially based on the RFX100 and on the bottom of each page it clearly states RFX100 is a registered trademark <coughs> of RFX. The RFX represents the bulk of the information comprising the SL random and is sometimes identical to it. Contractually, there are a few express terms. A license clause stating that RFX hereby licenses serendipity on a limited worldwide basis to create futures based on the RFX 100 and to use the RFX 100 for its legitimate internal purposes. There's an IP clause which provides SL acknowledges, serendipity acknowledges that any and all IPR of whatever nature in and to the RFX index shall belong to and be vested in RFX and if required at any time, the provision of at least six months written notice, Serendipity will enter into the standard form license agreement then applied by RFX. There's a five month mutual termination clause, but no explicit provisions dealing with what happens after termination. And finally, there's a clause stating that Serendipity is to pay a one-off fee of £100 per future based on the RFX 100 and no fees for other use unless explicitly agreed otherwise. In August, uh, Serendipity MD, your MD, sent an email saying, I've heard that the RFX don't have any rights on the data feed and we can get a replacement index, namely the MFX100 from Mc the McFly Futures Exchange. Let's terminate RFX, rebase our index on the MFX100 and only use the RFX100 internally as a basis for the, for the SL random going forward. The head of the Futures Trading Desk tells you that he's happy with the plan and after termination will base all SL Futures on the MFX100, but he'll need to wind down all outstanding SL Futures based on the RFX index before termination and for a period of a year until all outstanding SL Futures conclude. So that's our fact pattern to think about over coffee. Um, we'll come back and, and sort of go through what we think are the ingredients of that. Um, but we'll break for coffee now and come back in 15 minutes. Thank you. Welcome back after the break. As you can see from the board, we've got a news article up here which shows that just yesterday, um, BGC Capital Markets have apparently sued Tullet for misuse of data. Apparently, the claims relate to the fact that BGC is alleging that Tullets had access to certain electronic broking data and information which it was allowed to use or access to in one context via a subsidiary, but which it used for a different purpose to generate profits in the market for historically unregulated financial instruments such as swaps, effectively misappropriating the data and using it for a different purpose. The key takeaway from this point is that data rates battles will become increasingly common. We think that data is becoming more valuable, although the rights in it are unclear, there will be more battles between parties to protect their rights in and to data and to profit from it. So why is data becoming increasingly important? Well, the first issue to bear in mind is that computing power and capability has risen hugely over the last 10, 20 years. For example, in the legal market, when I first started, one used to have to go down to the library and look things up in books. Um, nowadays, I wouldn't even consider that. I can find almost anything and everything I need via the web and via any number of different providers who offer updated case law, articles about cases, um, latest information, etc., etc., etc. And this 
parallels across many other different industries. The web and computing power and capability has completely revolutionized our ability to access, store, utilize, manipulate and derive data. One of the best examples or one of the best ways of showing how this has happened is perhaps by looking at the amount of total data allegedly available <coughs> electronically. I don't know how people estimate this, but as you can see from the figures on the board, it is estimated that 1,733 million terabytes of data will exist in 2011. By 2015, that figure is going to be 10,525,000,000 terabytes. I don't really understand terabytes, so I've come up with my own measurement, which is called the British Library. And approximately what this means is that the amount of digital information stored online in 2011 will equal 413,000 British libraries. In 2015, it's going to be 2.5 million British libraries. As you can see, we're increasing at what is almost becoming an exponential rate. What this means in practical terms is that just about every business in the world is doubling the amount of information it keeps every single year. And this is happening across the, across the board in just about every single industry sector. In the financial services industry, for example, as you can see from our white paper, data industry itself is estimated to be worth $22.7 billion in 2009. And that's increasing year on year as we see different types of data being, being derived, being made available and manipulated in different ways. The truth is that data is becoming increasingly important, prevalent and valuable, and that means we are likely to see an upsurge in litigation over rights to data and databases where clear contracts do not cover the data. So if you're a data provider, we would suggest that the goal, the nirvana if you like, is to control access to your data at any and all times, and therefore you will have, avoid having to rely on the underlying in intellectual property rights, and rather you will be able to rely on contractual terms. Now, in those contracts, you can explicitly state exactly what obligations apply in respect of data, and you can mirror and, in fact, increase the rights that would have been given you otherwise via IP law or perhaps confidence, subject to competition law impacts, of course, which I'm not going to discuss in detail today. In other words, a contract affords you an opportunity to exactly regulate what can and can't be done with your data. What are the key terms? Well, license clauses. First of all, please do not draft them so that they say what you cannot do Rather, you should say only what can be done in detail, reserve all other rights, and make it exactly and explicitly clear only what can be done. They should also give you a right to turn off access to infringers, directly or indirectly. So in other words, if someone has sub-licensees, you should be able to impose rights on the sub-licensor and the licensor to immediately terminate their contracts if they're infringing your rights. Also, you should make sure that where data is available, it is always labelled as confidential. This will provide you with a confidentiality blanket. So put confidentiality notices on websites, written documents and contracts, and add copyright, database rights, etc. in your confidentiality notice. It may not ensure that you have a right, but at least it gives you an opportunity to make it clear that you believe you have one, and it may prevent further use. Rights of confidence, as Richard has explained earlier, can in fact be very broad and can help you in certain circumstances where IP rights may not. So further to that, we've picked out three examples of current industry trends and how that relates to the facts that we've just been talking about in the first half of the talk. First of all, the issue of legacy data exploitation. Where this occurs is where a business has perhaps let data leak out of its regulated world, whether via the internet um, or via uh, unregulated contracts and access to third parties. If you're working for a company that has data out in public that is not protected under contract, 
we suggest that this is what you'll have to do. First of all, you'll need to look at the data itself and consider what are your legal rights within it. If you have strong potential IP rights in it, that might mean you can act faster because you'll be able to enforce your rights even though there is no contract in place. If it's not clear as to how extensive your rights are, it doesn't mean that you can't exercise them. What it does mean is that you'll have to very carefully consider the situation before acting and take a thorough plan before taking any action at all. Um, first of all, beware of implied licences. If you've given the data to people under circumstances where they may have obtained an implied licence, you may have to give reasonable notice of terminating that licence before imposing terms on them. Therefore, try and identify these individuals that have your data, what they've been using it for, and whether or not you've acquiesced in any way to them using it. Then you need to devise a thorough long-term licensing plan. What kind of costing arrangements are you going to put in place? Who is going to license whom? How exactly are you going to regulate your contractual world? You need to work out where you want to get to in three or four years' time at the beginning and put a thorough plan in place to implement it. Beware of competition law, in particular if you're in a dominant position. One of the key issues here is that you have to consider what is the relevant market in which you may be dominant. That can often be a lot smaller than you think it is, particularly if you have unique data that may not be replicated by somebody else or replaced with other substitutable data. If so, you may not be able to refuse to supply the data to anyone, remember the case of McGill, and you must ensure that your charges are effectively justifiable under competition law. Well, what does that mean? In, in basic terms, what it means is that either in terms of the cost of preparing the data with a reasonable premium on top, your charges are justifiable, and or secondly, um, that the value to the customer means that the data charges you charge are justifiable. What does value to the customer mean? Well, it will be different in each case, but obviously that means that the courts may find it difficult to regulate in detail your charging structures. However, it also must means that you may not be able to discriminate in pricing. Therefore, you must charge transparent, obvious and equal prices if you're in a dominant position. Then you must work out how you're going to plug all of the leaks in your current data world. That means looking at all of the data streams and data flows and making sure that contracts are put in place at every juncture. If you have a leak within the data world, then you may not be able to impose rights and confidence or contract. And lastly and finally, you must impose contracts on all of those getting the data directly, your distributors, and they must include terms requiring all who distribute data to impose your contracts downstream. Because of permissioning systems and time periods involved and costs, you may have to actually talk with your distributors in quite a lot of detail about how long it will be before you can implement your licensing regime. And eventually you'll end up in a place where you can cut off all of those that refuse to sign and impose reasonable time periods on distributors to do so. Secondly, we're seeing a lot of horizontal aggregation going on. This doesn't mean that we're not seeing vertical deals. We're still seeing a lot of traditional data deals between one person, for example, creating the data and selling or providing it on to a distributor who will then provide it to the general public. The differences we're seeing in the vertical deals are perhaps that the power and awareness of the data provider is going up. We're certainly seeing data providers insisting on more equal terms on their distributors, perhaps in terms of revenue share deals or higher fees for the data in the first place. So what do we mean by horizontal aggregation? Well, essentially, we mean that participants in a particular market will club together and aggregate data to create a bigger picture. There are lots of examples of this, but the one I'm going to pick on is the insurance market. We know that a number of um, insurers in the market have clubbed together to put all of their claims data um, in a big pool, which can then be accessed and used by all of the other members. It's incredibly useful data amongst a group. For example, if they're trying to assess the cost of insurance of flooding in a particular area, it's very helpful to know all of the different claims that relate in that area so you can accurately price 
your insurance product um, on the basis of actual evidence of the risks involved, <clears throat> i.e. the number of claims, the height of the claims, the frequency of the claims, etc., etc., etc. This obviously creates a certain number of issues, in particular market confidentiality and competition issues. So only certain data may be shared. <clears throat> you may not share your pricing information and so on and so forth. How is this done? Well, effectively, people either mask or anonymize the data so that individual market shares, customer details and prices are hidden. And really, in the insurance market example, um, simply the number of claims, the value of the claims, uh, and nothing to do with the pricing information of the actual sale of the insurance products are made available. Also, you must have clear rules of the games between the contributors and for onward licensing. How will this aggregated data be sold on? What will the profit shares be for all of those who are aggregating the data? Who can use it and exploit it and in which markets? Quite often the parties will club together and establish a joint venture or license a third party to do the actual calculation, aggregation and onward sale of the, of the data. Lastly, we picked up a couple of um, separate examples of commingling derived data and post-termination rights, these issues that we also come across very frequently. In respect of commingling and derived data, uh, what does it mean? Well, effectively, as Richard described in the first half, commingling of data is where you get different flavours of data and mix them all together so that it's very difficult to work out which data belong to whom and which data is, is actually being published. It's a commingled version of all of them. For example, if you look at a data screen which has all relevant data on a particular company, for example, details of the accounts, directors, trading price, um, products, etc., 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 that might actually be derived from maybe 20, 30 different providers, but it's all sort of mingled together and meshed together, so it's very difficult to work out which particular data comes from which provider. And secondly, derived data, which means that what you would do is um, derive a different data from that data. So, for example, running the company data I've just explained, against the market average index in order to produce a relative scorecard for that particular company. In other words, you're using the upstream data along with other data to, to create a, a new form of data, a derived data. It doesn't relate directly to the above information, but it couldn't have been created without it. The issue with commingling and derived data is that it's very difficult to enforce IP rights in relation to distributed data if the input data is not discernible or identifiable in the output data. How can you claim there's been a breach of copyright, for example, if what's published doesn't relate to the incoming data? You can't. Therefore, it's essential to impose clearly limited and explicit license rights on what can and can't be done with your data. Can it be commingled? If so, what are your rights in respect of that data? Can data be derived from it? If so, what, how, and can you control it? And lastly, moving on to post-termination rights. The contract is silent upon rights post-termination in a license. Do not presume that the license will also terminate. There's a clear case, Regina Glass Fibre versus Schuller, 1972, where effectively the court decided, although the agreement had been terminated, the license underneath the agreement hadn't, because it's not necessarily implied the license will terminate if the licensee will not be able to enjoy the full benefit of what he has paid for pre-termination. Therefore, contractual terms regarding post-termination must explicitly set out what can and can't be done by the licensee. Is the license terminated? Must they purge the data from the system? How must that be done? Obviously, there are some practical difficulties with this, and what we often see is some quite general blasé clauses put in. What really needs to be done is the thinking through exactly what practically can be done and what should be done by your licensees on post-termination. Thank you very much. And now we're moving just briefly on to the case study. 
Um, Richard read out the details of the case this morning, and obviously they're up on the screen, and I know hopefully you've had a chance to read them. So I'm just going to briefly work through our suggested answer. Now, just to recap slightly, your MD sent an email saying, I've heard that RFX don't have any rights in the data feed, and we can get a replacement index, namely the MFX100 from McFly Futures Exchange. Let's terminate RFX, rebase our index upon the MFX100, and only use the RFX internally as a basis for the SL random going forwards. What does a contract say? Well, the RFX contract can be terminated on five months' notice. But the question you should be asking as counsel um, for serendipity limited is whether you should terminate. One key issue will be that before termination, and perhaps also serving RFX with no termination notice, you will need to have secured a clear contract with MFX for use of the MFX 100, including a license covering all uses by serendipity, a condition that MFX has all rights necessary to license you, and an indemnity protecting you in the event of a breach. There's no point terminating until you've secured your new supply. Next issue is to look at the IP rights that may exist in the RFX 100 to see whether or not you can exploit that data post-termination, pre-termination. In fact, that's a bit of a red herring. Whilst it's important to understand the rights within the RFX 100, the issue is that the RFX 100 is only available subject to contract. Therefore, the contract is, far, is the determining factor. You must look at the terms of the contract to see what it says about what you can and can't do. However, we must bear in mind that RFX may have limited protectable IP interests in the RFX 100, although the extent of the protection afforded by these rights is extremely unclear. Firstly, trademark. Well, on the facts, it seems that serendipity are using the trademark purely in a descriptive sense. And so RFX may have limited rights to enforce um, anything under trademark against RFX post-termination. The Commerce Bank case and how that might apply in English courts. There could be a passing off action, but this seems unlikely. Second, literary copyright. The actual index number is too minimal to be afforded copyright protection. Remember Exxon. Secondly, you have to consider whether the index itself, including the historical tracking of it, might meet the requirements of being protected by either database copyright or compilation copyright. It's unclear, and this is an area which is open to much debate, which I don't intend to go into here, but it's certainly possible they may have either a database copyright and or a compilation copyright to the index. However, the key issue here is whether Serendipity's use of the SL random would actually infringe SL's other uses. Serendipity's uses are in fact mainly covered by the contract, so there's no breach here. Because Serendipity are only publishing the SL random on the basis of other numbers also, and being put into it, it depends whether cell random substantially would breach RFX's upstream rights. That's not clear. Although it's identical at times, it's not identical at other times. Maybe an argument that it's not a substitute for and it's not taking substantial amounts of RFX 100. The truth is we don't have enough information to know. Database right. Well, as discussed before, clearly RFX do not have a database right because they are creating the information, one presumes, that goes into the index. And lastly, Serendipity has a duty of confidence towards RFX regarding the data, which may be enforceable depending upon the extent of the relationship between SL Random and RFX. Even the question, we deliberately do not know the extent of that confidentiality rate. So after that slight red herring, apologies for that, we're moving on towards the contractual terms. The key issue to note is that the contract license is ambiguous both, both pre- and post-termination. It has no reservation of rights clause. So we do not know that just because the agreement's terminated, the license would terminate. This means that the license clause itself may be interpreted quite broadly for RFX try and argue um, that it should be interpreted narrowly based on the contra proferentum rule. Second point to note is, as we mentioned, Regina Glass, Filer versus Schiller. Where an agreement is silent concerning post-termination rights, it may not necessarily mean that the license is terminated.
bit of caution on that case. It has not been subsequently adopted and it is not viewed as necessarily the last word on the issue. However, it does mean that there may be an argument post-termination that serendipity still has a license. However, the other key point to note is that there is a contract term stating SL acknowledges that any and all intellectual property rights of whatever nature in and to the RFX 100 index should belong to and be vested in RFX. And if required at any time with the provision of at least six months written notice, SL will enter into the standard form license agreement then applied by RFX. This is enforceable. So effectively, RFX can adopt a license agreement, require serendipity to enter into it. Therefore, they could regulate serendipity's use ultimately, although it would have to be on six months notice. Obligation to enter into future contracts can be enforceable, as we note from the um, Victor Chandler case. Very similar wording, although there's a notice clause here that wasn't in the Victor Chandler one. And we do know that RFX would have be entitled to enforce a contract in respect of its data supply um, from the comments of Etherton J and at the races versus British Horse Racing Board. So where does that leave us? Well, what is serendipity's ability to use the RFX 100 pre and post termination? I've divided these into three basic categories. First of all, as serendipity's use for regulatory and business record purposes. The contract appears to include a right for serendipity to keep the data provided insofar as necessary for um, record and regulatory business purposes, both pre- and post-termination of the contract. Secondly, can serendipity wind down its futures dependent upon the RFX 100? During the contract term, it appears that serendipity is licensed to create futures based upon the RFX 100, subject to a payment of a £100 fee per future. That fee is explicitly stated to be a one-off fee of £100 per future and no fees for other use unless explicitly agreed otherwise. This would seem that serendipity can strongly suggest that the £100 fee if paid would appear to include all fees for each future during its entire life, i.e. regardless of termination of the upstream license. However, if serendipity seek to terminate, as this is a bit of a critical point, it would definitely be best to approach RFX in advance and get their explicit written agreement, especially in light of RFX's right to introduce new license terms and fees on six months notice. And lastly, and probably most controversially, serendipity's use of the RFX 100 in calculating and deriving the SL random. During the term, it is arguable whether use of the RFX 100 to create and distribute the RFX random is permitted. I don't really know enough of the facts. Are RFX aware this is happening? Have they consented to it in one way, shape or form or not? Um, it would seem that serendipity are publicly acknowledging um, that it's created because the SL random is labelled partially based on the RFX 100. On the bottom of the page, it clearly states... Um, that RFX 100 is a registered trademark of RFX. It therefore appear to suggest that the license could be construed as including a right to produce CSL random. However, as noted above, RFX can amend license terms on six months' notice, so that could change. However, post-termination, there may be a different answer. RFX controls all of the access to the data, and so it seems SL will not be able to continue to use such um, data without receipt of a licensed data feed. Therefore, in the long term, RFX may be able to restrict, restrict use of the RFX 100 and creation of the SL random, or impose additional fees or license terms on it. So therefore, we come to our suggested answer. Effectively, and perhaps surprisingly, we suggest that serendipity should not terminate the contract, um, but should cease to use it for the futures as and when the MFX 100 is available for use. The contract does not require any specific payments other than one-off fees where FSL futures are issued based upon the RFX 100. And so at present there is no need to terminate because there are no additional fees that would apply. However, as counsel, you should make the managing director aware that serendipity might terminate the agreement by five months' notice 
or they could introduce new fees um, or new contract provisions which are quite, quite onerous on the basis of six months notice, in which case serendipity may be forced to terminate in future on five months notice. There are strong arguments to suggest that post-termination serendipity will be able to continue to store RFX data provided pre-termination for regulatory purposes and that SL futures based on the RFX 100 can be wound down using the MFX 100 in any event. However, it would be important to document the fact that new RFX futures are being, sorry, new SL futures are based on the new index and you have a new data feed for them. The key issue is therefore probably the SL random. RFX may impose charges or restrictions on future use of the RSX, RFX 100 for creation of the SL random, and if terminated, SL are unlikely to be able to continue to use the RFX 100 for creation of it. For depending on the commercial approach and how aggressive you want to make, want to be we have of course deliberately chosen a neutral answer not least because there are index providers and users within the room and some of them are here in both capacities it may be better to actually commercially approach rfx and attempt to negotiate a reduction in fees and or explicit terms to cover future use obviously bearing in mind that you do have another option for an index and making them well aware of that well thanks very much for your time i hope this has been of some use to uh, any questions